You're listening to Lost and Sound. Paul Hanford. I'm a writer, a podcaster and a DJ in Berlin. And I've always believed that one of the best ways we come together is through music. And through this series, we meet the innovators, the outsiders, the mavericks, the people who, when they make music, they do it utterly in their own way. Past guests have included Peaches, Chili Gonzalez, Ghost Poet, Letitia Sadier, and first and more. And each week, I have a conversation with someone who I think approaches music in a fresh and exciting way. Hello, hello. I hope you're having a really lovely day today and welcome to Lost and Sound, the podcast where we meet the innovators, the outsiders, the mavericks, the artists that do their thing and they do it in their own way. And we talk about art and life and all of the things that make us who we are because beautiful things are made not from a hierarchy of knowledge but from sharing and connection and today on the show you're going to hear a conversation I had with the one and only Barry Adamson. Barry's memoir begins with him hearing Fever by Becky Lee from inside his mother's womb. It goes on to show the trials and tribulations of the first 30 years of his life growing up in 1960s Manchester, where he spent time with serious health issues before going on to join Harvard Devoto's legendary magazine. He then went on to join Nick Cave et al. in the also incredibly legendary birthday party and then he went on and joined the incredibly incredibly also legendary nick cave and the bad seeds solo he's mercury nominated for the 1992 soul murder album reissue time oedipus schmidipus his 1996 album which features jarvis cocker billy mckenzie and nick cave is set for re-release on 29th of july he's always been an outsider I hope he doesn't mind me saying that. I mean that in a very complimentary way. So that makes him such a great and ideal guest. And I had this conversation with him back in November, just before I shut away to write the book. And I remember at the time, because we were talking about his memoir and his book just coming out, feeling super, super, super like I was absorbing in every word he was saying as he had completed a process that I was about to do. On that note, my book, Coming to Berlin, is available now. 
on Velocity Press. You can buy it in the shops. You can order it online. You can, if you're in Berlin, you can even come and see me and I'll get a copy to you. It's 15 euros if you do that personally. <laughs> and I'll be talking about it on Lauren Laverne's breakfast show on Six Music on Friday the 10th of June at 8.40 a.m. approximately that. But anyway, 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 this is what happened when I had a chat with Barry Adamson. So it's like with the book, what was the process in it feeling like the right time for you now to commit your memoirs down? Hmm. Well, funny, I'd been going on for a few years, you know, like not as a sort of like, I must do this, I've got to do this, you know. It's just a sort of, I had this idea really that, more and more I was seeing that the first 30 years of my life was sort of quite a story. And it also had a sort of filmic quality to it in terms of the structure. And I thought that's quite an interesting thing, you know, like, but then when I thought about the idea of writing a memoir, I thought, oh, you know, but you can't do that. You know, you've got to do, you know, your whole life. And I thought, no, 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 what? just sort of take that section. Cause you know, you see, people write memoirs about a, a 10 year period that was particularly you know, poignant or something. So I thought I'll do it that way. And then more and more, it sort of became this idea, a bit like the next project as it were, you know, like when you finish an album, you sort of go, okay, what, what, what do I do next? And something kind of comes along in your mind and grabs a hold of you. So it became that really. And then there was a series of events and sequences where my manager, Sean was talking to, David Barraclough at Omnibus, who then said, oh, we'd be interested to see something by Barry. Is he thinking about writing anything? You know, And then, lo and behold, that got me going into a proposal. They liked the idea, this, which was slightly from left field in, in terms of it being more like a kind of detective novel or yeah. investigation. So, so then next thing I know, I was up and running. And then two months later, we hit pandemic. And then I'm sort of like, in there you know just there's nowhere else to go except this into the past you know yeah and and was it easy to recollect memories that are going back you know 30 40 years or so was it Mm. you know was uh did you was there a lot did you have to play a bit of detective work you know yourself in in recollecting stuff because i imagine some things are very easy to recall and another thing you're like you know trying to get the specifics of time yeah yeah i think that's part that was part of the you know, part of the writing was what you were going to put in, what you were going to leave out, and how you were going to research it, and what how you wanted to therefore. And it was for me, it was like interesting because, you know, I, it made me sort of go to the, the library in the beginning. You know, it made me go and you know research stuff. It made me go and seek out people who were around at the time. And so I was collecting, you know, bits from here, there, and everywhere, and then sort of applying it to this this self investigation method. And see how that would fit, you know, in terms of the the structure, which was seemed to be becoming more and more important as time, as I went on with this thing. I thought if I can do it in such a way that you know the structure is gripping and that the, the facts are sort of uh, you know have something to them as well, then it could be a, a good read. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm 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 sort of about halfway through it, and I'm I'm loving it, okay. and, and like what you're saying about. Um, the kind of sort of detective sort of thing and like approaching mm. it as also uh, like you would an album or like, you know, when you got your next yeah. project on, um, you're exactly. someone that's always kind of 
you know, films play an important role in your life, music, obviously. Mm-hmm. Do you, do, is, is, is there a similarity between writing a book for you and, say, making an album or doing a film score? Well, funny enough, I, you know, because I haven't written a book before, I mean, I've written the short stories, and uh, which in fact kind of gave me confidence to, to write a book, which is a bit like filmmaking. You know, you write shorts and then do a feature. Mm. So I had that in my in my uh, swag bag. Um, <laughs> but as far as like writing an album, uh, it, I, because I have the experience of that, I kind of know where I am. But I think <clears throat> this is but sort of segues us slightly to why I was sort of writing music at the same time, because I was so much in the past that I, I felt I had to become kind of present by writing music. So in some ways it was a similar thing, but it, it, it also had this other daunt to it which is in that i'd never written a book before and the fact that i had to get up every day and write it you know and, and imagine myself <laughs> to be a writer as it were you know and do it you know like wake up at sort of like four or five in the morning and get going you know like i read that writers do you know? <laughs> and then get to midday stop and then get into some music and that that grounded me regrounded me in the present Mm. And do, do you know, like, I mean, with the music as well, do you know when to stop every day? Um, I don't really see it as a, you know, it's a sort of 24-hour job, really. So I, I'd, I'd maybe come back if I had a moment or listen to something and go and just tweak something or get an idea about something else. But in terms of if you mean when something when a piece of music's finished i i do know that I, i've kind of practiced and practiced a, a sort of a, you know it becomes a bit of an art really of like letting go like you, that's it you, you don't need to add any more to that you know i used to be terrible really i couldn't stop because i didn't think it was good enough or something like that but i now i, I have that now and i can keep things fairly straightforward in my mind is like that's what I'm trying to do and when I've done that then it can go out you know yeah and I mean I mean I I used to make music myself and I I think that I could kind of tell that I was getting more confident in in how I made music by how less I would double track and triple track vocals because it started off as being like you know I want to cover it up and make it sort of surround it in stuff so it sounds better you know yeah uh, and, and you know your stuff's very very layered anyway isn't it and there's a real sense of uh, i i don't know of that kind of creating a, a world around what you do you know is, yeah i'm is, fascinated uh, with the arrangement you know i'm, I'm sort of sorry Dave, to cut in the, the no please do yeah. no i mean it, it, that comes from an arrangement fascination and the way instruments sort of you know lean against each other and make a, a different sound than they would do on their own and in combinations and groups and, and different things like that. So that's where the layering idea comes from. Um, but that that too can get a sort of bit obsessive. I, I read this thing with that, that guy, uh, Beck, mm. who was uh, in the studio with Pharrell Williams, and I think he put like four things down, and Pharrell Williams went, great, we've got it. And he went, what do you mean? Like, you know, I've got to do like another 30 tracks of different sub-melodies and this. And he goes, no, 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 you don't have to do it at all. Mm. And he was like, he felt so exposed, you know, just with the voice, the guitar, some a drum machine, you know, and, and some electronics. And he said, like, and he, he said it really taught him 
that you don't need to sort of cover everything up. So maybe I'm a bit like you, I'm a bit sort of guilty, but I also do have a sort of fascination with the older world, you know, of like say jazz arrangers that put all this instrumentation mm-hmm. into a, you know, a, a riff or a song or whatever it is. You know, with, with the, going back to the book a little bit as well, like mm-hmm. um, I love the way that music comes in right at the beginning. Like there's a kind of a, a kind of, you know, there's an actual soundtrack yeah. to, to what's going on. Um, yeah. And, and how did the idea of putting, like, you know, it begins with a description of you hearing Fever by Peggy Lee uh, mm-hmm. before, before you're born. And and, <laughs> and I love that, like, yeah. the sort of audacity to start a, to start a book before it, it, you're yeah, born. Yeah, it's the big conceit, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I thought if, if people buy that, then I'm okay, you know, because uh, for ages I was thinking you can't do that, you know. But I thought as well, also, it's a kind of... Uh, what do you call it? You know, it's, it sets up the, the, the premise of, of, you know, before you're even in, you know, you hear this thing and it propels you to, into sort of a, another world, which is life in this case, you know, and it gives you the sort of direction that you already, like a direction that you you want to sort of head towards, which is finding that, what what that song comes from, why that song is playing and where, you know, and this, this magic thing that's, that's around you, you know, even from conception you know, through to birth. Um, so I, I guess I was using it that way. And, I, and, and you know, it's really funny because I, I told Omnibus that I wanted to write this this kind of, you know, and they kept the detective sort of thing. And they kept going, well, we are a music public, you know, we are a music book publisher. We're a music book publisher. I thought, well, yeah, I get it. But then I thought, you know, the, the anchor in the book could be music, you know, uh, not could be, but should be music because that's what it's, that's been my life anyway. So I had this idea to therefore, you know, di- try and like explain, if you like, in some way to, to readers, like how my brain works around it, you know, how it absorbs it, how it looks at it, how it sort of therefore then creates it and all that sort of, you know, so I thought, I'd, I thought that could be a really interesting thing for people, you know, mm-hmm. to sort of see how, you know, my brain sort of makes sense of the way, you know, like we said before, an arrangement works or a particular sound works in conjunction with another sound and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and, and like music doesn't happen in a void, does it? It, it kind of comes from people's lives and, and yeah, that's, yeah. that's such a sort of, uh, uh, you yeah. know, important part part of it. Is, was it quite straightforward to you, to the songs that you picked? Well, they were, I mean, you know, I tried to stay obviously as, as sort of faithful as I could to the songs as, as they presented themselves in my life, you know. So I'm fairly, uh, I felt quite confident about being able to sort of present them in that way. These, these are how they influence me, you know. And I, when I analyse a song, that's my, that's, I'm trying to, you know, show how my brain works at that point to to understand what was what, what I was hearing and feeling and you know how it was coming across to me and, and I also got this kind of impression whilst I'm reading it of like it kind of feels like in a way I, I had the kind of imagination of being in a film as well um with like that's the soundtrack you know for that scene and right so- yeah 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 that's what I was trying to do as well so like let's just take you know uh the song "I'm Not in Love" by 10CC, which is laced. I don't know if have you got to there yet. Um. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 
Okay, so that's laced around this very bizarre scene of sort of, you know, the first uh, first sort of love, you know, and 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 so so therefore there's that it surrounds the the story and sort of wraps itself around the narrative, and I'm also able to sort of go through how the song is affecting me in terms of like you know viscerally, emotionally, and all the rest of it while playing out the scene in the book. So I'm very aware of like, that's, that's the soundtrack for that. You know, that's this for that scene. That's, mm. that's the, the soundtrack source as well as sort of some sort of strangeness uh, behind the way the music of that song is absolutely quite strange as well. Totally. It's one of those sort of, I love those kind of tunes where like, you know, I first heard that tune from just sort of my, probably my parents playing on the radio as yeah. I was growing up. And, okay. you know, at the same time, it being like such a big kind of radio here, it's like you listen to mm. one of those layers of the voices and then there's, yeah. the, there's the receptionist voice coming in, you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, big boys don't cry here. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so you're growing up in Manchester in the seventies, and mm-hmm. you start to get playing in bands. There's a sort of romanticised view in a way now, um, at least you know, as I wasn't there, like, I, that I sort of perceive just in terms of how things are talked about about Manchester in the seventies, yeah. in terms of the individualism, in terms of the bands that were kind of yeah. coming out. Um, do you feel that that sort of romanticism? has become like a bit of a, does it feel like it's sort of steer, you know, is it sort of gone from the truth, do you think? No, I don't think so at all. Um, But I think there's another truth that I try and portray as well in the book. And I also think the film Closer about Joy Division by Anton Corbin is, is absolutely brilliant. You know, there's a starkness, there's a bleakness, you know, there's not this sort of like, it's not warm and fuzzy at all, you know. It's people sort of almost like sort of fighting for their lives while still staying cool, <laughs> mm. I think, you know. And I think that black and white world is, is portrayed so well in that film. And I actually, if I'm honest, sort of thought about that quite a lot and thought about like how you would walk down the street, you know, and there'd be nobody around, you know, and you'd bump into somebody, say, from Joy Division. All right, yeah, how are you? All right. And then they'd go off in one direction and you'd go off in another, you know, and uh, it's, that's portrayed sort of very well. But I think there's also this other thing, which is a real beating heart, you know, and I think that's what causes the romanticism in some way, because that's how we make sense of those things. But I think the spirit of that time is the thing that, that gets easier, e- you know, easily understood by romanticizing it. But I think it's actually a, the thing that propelled it, which was which was this very sort of subdued, like heartbeat about changing the world, you know, and changing in music forever, which is actually what happened. Yeah, and and um, and I mean, I was speaking with uh, actually someone that you know, actually, who's who's a friend in Berlin, Mark Reader, and oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> and he he was kind of telling saying about how. Um, Manchester in the 70s like being in a band was like for him felt like being a a kind of lifeline where there weren't prospects particularly elsewhere is that is that something that you you related to yeah I didn't I didn't know what was where I was going to go I had no idea I think I uh, you know I took a summer job and I was going to go to Europe and maybe just 
travel around, you know, and I'd heard about sort of, you know, that you could go and pick olives and, you know, all this sort of stuff you could go, you know. So I thought I, I just had no idea what I was going to do. And I, my prospects sort of didn't look good at all. And, you know, sort of from an all, from physically, racially, you know, I, I was just sort of in like, well, God, well, what am I going to do now, you know? And uh, so as Mark correctly points out, the lifeline came along for creatives and people who are interested in some ways, you know, people becoming like, because of this punk and post-punk ideal idea, people were, were sort of just following, like, you know, creating jobs for themselves, if you like, really, and getting in bands or helping bands or, you know, or photographing bands or, you know, whatever it was, that was the, that was the call, if you like. Mm. And, and like you're in magazine and um, mm-hmm. you kind of describe in the book as well about how how different you you felt is in who you are from like other bass players at the time, just like on a bigger s- scale, like, you know, you're not this sort of long haired flared jean kind of thing, which oh, is yeah. still kind of going on. <laughs> um, <I> don't have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But also within, within say like the punk community and people starting stuff of again, a new wave or whatever, whatever, like, generic yeah. terms people call stuff did you feel like that it was as in it was all about individuality or did you still feel like you were kind of outside the the outsiders um, well I'd always felt that anyway that I was you know outside the outsiders but I felt like I was suddenly in a, a gang of people that were slightly outside of the outsiders, particularly mm. with Howard Devoto, you know, I felt good about being part of that, of his gang in a way. And the fact that he was sort of, you know, putting together like you know, lyrics and sort of forcing them down people's sort of throats, but from, from a literary mm. perspective, as opposed to a, you know, a, a song, almost like a song perspective. You know, it was really thrilling. I thought, and then, you got John McGeoch, who's like the anti-guitar sort of hero, but playing guitar in people in ways that get other guitarists sort of went, "Oh my God, what's happening there?" You know? And uh, and I felt this sort of spirit of like newness to apply myself to something I'd never applied myself to before, and and keep up as well with what was going on with everything, and so it, it kind of. Uh, um, no, apart, you know, it made me feel a part of mm. uh, rather than apart from things, you know. So it, it was really interesting that that's that's a kind of unique dynamic, I think, really, that you can be an outsider, but then you're you're in the middle of of what's going on, as it were. So I'm trying to say, I think. Yeah, no, I I love what you're saying, and and I think that there is a sort of thing about like, um, on one sense, bands do sort of become like some bands at least anyway do manage to become like a kind of a gang against the world as well don't they and and, and was there a sense of that with with magazine yeah there was a sort of like yes we are this is who we are and we were very uh sort of our identity i think was the thing that sort of you know came before us and and a reputation you know howard's reputation and Howard's reputation for being, you know, the way he was with the press and all the rest of it, which I loved, you know, I thought it was great to sort of almost, you know, keep that sort of punk spirit, if you like. It sound, that sounds a bit crass to say it that way, but I think, you know what I mean? And, and yeah. therefore, 
spearhead the band in a certain direction. And I, you know, I was quite happy to be a part of that and, and to sort of follow that. I think the, me and the, the, the gang against the world really was, 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 was the birthday party, which, you know, a waiting to sort of, you know, beat you up around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> was that quite intimidating initially, sort of meeting the birthday party? It, I found it completely intimidating, but at the same time, again, it was it was the language was very different you know it was it was it came from another place that didn't have the english suppression mm. <laughs> you know and that and the acting through gesture they just were you know like bulls in a china shop and uh didn't mince words and uh, they were all like six foot bloody three or four as well so physically <laughs> they were all intimidating and they didn't quite understand, although they, you know, I think there was a, a, a culture clash, which made things interesting as well. You know, that, that made for sort of a creative spark. And, you know, it was that whole thing of, of magnets, like repelling and attracting and, you know, amethyst rubbing up against it and sparks flying and all that sort of stuff was going on. <laughs> and it must have been like uh, kind of rejoining uh, the Bad Seeds sort of, all of these years later, it, was it sort of, I mean, obviously people kind of mature and, and sort of, yeah. you know, was it like, did you, you know, in the time between, was there a strange kind of feeling of noticing these people have become, you know, some of these people have become like grown ups and I'm not saying yeah. they were before, but you know what I mean? That sort of changing yeah. maturity. Um, my experience is that nothing changes really. <laughs> you grow older, but I don't think anything changes. I mean, some, I mean, it's very. It was interesting to sort of walk into a band that you used to sort of say be at the airport and watch the conveyor belt go around and see a drumstick come off and someone say, "Who's <laughs> that?" You know, or a guitar without its strings or something like that. To then being sort of met at an airport on a private jet with a car that takes you to a hotel, which where someone's just hands you a key in the cup you know like all this the trappings of fame and they you know got very successful and very f famous but the the interdynamics exactly the bloody same as far as I was <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I love what you're saying about like how we're all the same inside but maybe the stuff around us kind of changes yeah and... that's it yeah exactly yeah that's exactly what I'm saying <laughs> and I think it was also like I mean, with with that era and that that era that you're involved in, and, and those people, and uh, the um, birthday party going into the bad seeds. A lot of you know, a lot of people talk and describe about the decadence and stuff but there's also this kind of sort of really really deep intellectual sort of side as well and that's always kind of come across in what you do as well you know um, it must I mean must have been so such a strange interesting contrast having these two things at the same time um I I didn't really see it as a separate thing you know you you always had to be you know carrying a book <laughs> that you were currently reading, you know, if, like, and everyone, you know, so everyone, you were communicating while you were reading Jim Thompson, you know, you, you'd read all the other people as well, Dave Goodis. And, and it was, it's because we didn't, I, my idea, I think my theory is that because we all just like left school and became, you know, there wasn't really a lot of higher education going on. So you had to educate yourself. 
and you had you had to educate yourself into a place that that you were slightly above <laughs> slightly above the education you know so you had to re, you know you you did your own study you know and you researched and you you ate books for breakfast lunch and dinner and any any time you caught somebody <clears throat> not playing an instrument they were reading a book or seeing a movie or you know and that was the deal and it and it became a really staple thing for you to do and then because there'd be this endless list of books that you needed to read and it's still the same now mm. you know, there's an endless list of books still to be read but but i think it was a way to sort of keep your education going but also be in touch with this this other world the the, the you know the the world of the intellect and the world of the artistically intellect as well. And, and so who was doing what in film, who was doing what in books? Oh, and have you read this by Camus? You know, and have you read, you know, in all that all the time, you know? Mm. It's, it's interesting because I, I think there was a period in, in my like early twenties where I, I was, I was just kind of doing sort of factory jobs and stuff. And, yeah. and I really, I read all of the time because to me it was like my, there was still this exciting world of, of yeah. literature and knowledge that, that, you know, like you were saying, it could give me this kind, it could give me my education. And also you, it's like a forbidden world as well, going into a bookshop yeah. and, and kind Interesting, of going, yeah. fuck, what's this about? You know, I've heard about mm. this, this writer's led on, not Hanson's led on to this. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And stuff. Yeah, and films would also support that as well, I think, you know. You would hear about, I was just thinking when you were saying that, like, you know, a novel by somebody like Gunter Grass, and then you'd see the the tin drum on the on the big screen, and just think, I'm blown away forever. You know, like I now have absorbed something which is going to affect me for the rest of my life, and you know, it's educated me, and it's made me therefore want to look at everything. You know, and then you, you end up seeing like twelve Fastbinder films, you know, in a day, <laughs> you know, and going like, right, I got it. You know, like. And then you, you become fascinated with his life and, and the fact that his output was in, incredible and then he died and you think that's why his output was incredible because there wasn't time or, you know, and you think about all these things. And, and so, yeah, you go on your artistic and uh, intellectualized ways to sort of also to feel like you're, you're standing in the world in, in some ways as well, I think, you know. Mm. It, is, it does give you, you know, it's a very validating thing, isn't it? Because yeah. it's something so nourishing. That's the one. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm. it is. What, what kind of memories do you have? Like, I mean, obviously, you know, you've written so much in your book about this, but, you know, when, when you're kind of, when someone like me just asks you, you know, what was it? Is it and like, we have these little flashes in our mind that just kind of come mm. through and, and you're, you're, with, you're with the Bad Seeds and you're in Berlin and you're recording mm. at Hansa. What was that time like for you? Well, it was it, there was a real polar opposite thing going on for me. You know, there was sort of like the fascination, as as like you, as you point out, I describe in the book. You know, the hallowed halls of Hansa and David Bowie. You know, and Iggy Pop and all this sort of stuff. And at the same time, trying to come to terms with the fact that my inner world was starting to crumble. And my inner world then, therefore, relied on an exterior to sort of hold me together, which wasn't, I wasn't going to get, you know. And I was sort of, by demonstration, told quite clearly I wasn't going to get that, that you are now in a sort of 
a situation where you needed to, to to sort of stand for yourself, you know, and you weren't even you suspected that you weren't, you know, that, that this idea of being a gang wasn't really true. And then, of course, as that leaves you, the, that sets you as becoming an outsider within a group of outsiders. Mm. And then you're, you're like, oh, shit, you know, where do I, what do I lean on? And I have no self to lean on because my self is crumbling within this. But then you have, you know, the next sort of bit of creative music, whether that be brought about, you know, brought about through through friction or you know and then that the, the, and also you know being in berlin there's there's nothing familiar around you know there's nowhere to uh, again to lean to and all of these things i think are, are somewhat designed i think that's the way nick wanted his life mm. so there wasn't really a security so that he could rally against this world of insecurity exterior you know in an exterior exterior way mm. and find something that therefore would become his self if i analyze that in a sort of minute you know so it was very 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 strange uh that's it, not a, 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 an experience that i've experienced before i think mm. and, and like after afterwards um kind of starting to make your own music or starting to kind of put your own music together like you know we're going through jumping forwards and Mm. and with with like film scores there's this kind of thing where you kind of said that you only wanted to work with people like david lynch uh before (laughs) i mean that's quite an audacious thing to say isn't it sure (laughs) Uh, but i think i was doing what people do now which is you know this quite popular idea on any sort of social media site where, you know, you create the things that you want in your life by positive affirmation or, mm. or whatever it is, or, you know, or dreaming that that can happen to you. And I, I did, yeah, I was like, you know, I want to work with, you know, David Lynch and Quentin Tarantino and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and all those things did happen, you know? Um, so I was very sort of fortunate in that way. I didn't realize I was being such a highly creative visualizer at the time. It was just, it was just and I, I meant like people like that, you know, like, of that kind of ilk, of that kind of sensibility. Um, I think that's what I meant really. So I was as shocked as anyone to get a call from David Lynch saying, you know, I've been listening to your music for 10 hours straight and I want you to work on, on my films. You know, I, I was like blown away. You know, I didn't sort of have that kind of a, uh, direct ambition you know some of my friends did uh, you know to go directly to the source and say i want to work for you you know give us a job mate and all that stuff but i mean listening to like your early seller albums and stuff it does in a way like you're talking about like kind of manifesting it and it's mm. it's sort of in reflection it just feels quite like to, to my ears anyway like it's almost like you, you kind of made this music separately but like and i can kind of completely see lynch listening to it people like that and going like you know because you, you sort of create this kind of detective style smoky sound world you know mm-hmm. and so it, it feels like maybe you know you just kind of you brought them to you through it <laughs> maybe yeah i think that's that was particularly with my side story the idea um because i was caught between that that thing of like wanting to write film music but having you know having not written any film music to therefore say this is what i do mm. so i think really that was the setup you know 
to say, this is the kind of ideas that I'm interested in. If you're interested in, then, you know, call this number, as it mm. were. Um, I think that's what I was setting up with that, particularly with that, that album. How did Lynch get in touch with you? Did you have, what was your sort of like first encounter with him? Well, he, I, again, another sort of, seek, you know, that a guy used to work with Andrew King, a uh, publisher at, at Mute Records, Mute Song, brilliant man. And his daughter ended up working in uh, David Lynch's office. And she was playing Moss Side Story. Or, I, yeah, I think that was it. She was playing Moss Side Story. And he walked past and said, what's that? And she told him all about me. And, you know, my, and he, so he said, okay. And then he listened to, uh, you know, uh, pretty much all my stuff, as he said to me on the phone, for 10 hours. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a kind of a, a lovely exaggeration to say, you know, like I'm all, <laughs> I, you know, I've given myself to you now. Do, do, are you interested in giving yourself to me, as it were? Mm. and so i did i got andrew called me up and said in about six hours you're gonna get a phone call from david lynch and i was like what you know like it was just unbelievable because <laughs> at the time i was really like quite down you know i'd had this sort of hip replacement surgery and i wasn't doing much you know and the, but then it was really weird because i'd had some of the studio stuff brought to the house and i thought right just do what you do which is write mm. sort of music so i wrote i'd written this theme and then david lynch called and said i'm going to send you this piece of film put something to it and let's send it back see what see how it is and it was the piece of music that i'd been writing that day which was really Mm. strange you know it just slotted into the scene really weird and it was almost like the you know the most incredible silver lining of a quite dark cloud at the time and and then that was it really yeah you know and then i i you know got better and went to america and worked on the film came back finished it off and that that was it do you think it's important, like you sort of mentioned about silver lining uh, to a bad yeah. cloud? Do you think, you know, in terms of um, your work, that going that that you need to go through those dark times to kind of find the silver lining, to find the music that you do, or, or do, you, do you feel not, that's a destructive way to look at things? Not consciously. Mm. I think that's just the way it's happened for me, you know. I'd, and I think, right, well, there must have been a reason for this. Um, maybe not even, but I've I've chosen to make art out of that. You know, um, I th- I'm trying to remember the line in the book about um, about art, sort of massaging the suffering of the person that makes it. You know, mm. and I think that's what's happened to me a lot. I've relied over the years, you know, on music and and and, and all the you know books and films to ground me in some way and restore me to a place of, of, of for one of a better word, faith, if you like, in, mm-hmm. in the world and just carrying on and doing whatever the next day. Because life is life, you know, and it, and it can be really shit sometimes. And it really throws stuff at you, which you don't even know is going to happen like the next day, you know. And so I feel I've used art and, and you know, as as I said, you know, to massage the suffering and then sort of, you know, project that out for people to sort of enjoy and sort of get with and, and if they like it then great and all the rest of it so i don't think i've necessarily created these you know and got oh i need to create mm. a dark time with which to write you know like it just life is life and it's, there's enough you know there's enough ups and downs anyway in a day you know just to, <laughs> to contend with so 
Yeah, and do you feel like you were a realist about life and what life throws at you? Becoming more, I think I did live in a sort of eternal kind of creative, you know, almost like teenage creative sort of like, you know, oh, great, you know, let's, as long as there's a, I can work out what comes after F minor, everything's okay. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> <laughs> I, you, know, I, I, you know, I'm far more immersed in the real world now, the, you know, the, the, the bill paying world and all the rest of it. Yeah. So I'm quite real about that. Yeah. And then does it, um, um, contrarily to that, is it still as easy to, well, not easy, that's the wrong word, but is it still, is there still like, you know, being more grounded? Is there still, is it still a, the same way of getting into the creative process or has that changed for you as well? No, no it's always the same way. I mean, I get a fascination just sort of hearing a note, you know, I, I don't know what it is. It's like, something happens in my brain and it engages with that note and that m makes me want to make other notes that go next to it, you know, and, mm. and then another sort of color that adds to that. And then another way of seeing it and visualizing something. So that's, that's not really changed. That's that sort of, I guess you call that inspiration. In some way. Yeah. I mean, I, I have the same kind of thing. Like for example, I've never been into football because I can't play it. Um, that Oh. Where, whereas like maybe I would have got really into football if I when I was a kid I was kicking around a ball with Playing friends all the time. if, if I was right. good maybe I would have got into it but it's just that sort of if I see you know if you I think if you're making things if you see if you're making things kind of person if you see things happening or you see something creative or experience something creative you immediately have a dialogue with it yourself don't you mm. Mm, I think so yeah and you relate to it as well. You relate to the world and then you want to be a part of that world mm. and a part of other worlds that relate to that world and so on and so on, I think. Yeah. Um, Barry, I think that's it, actually. Thanks so much for speaking with me today. No, that's cool, Paul. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, have a good one. <laughs> nice one. You too. Cheers, right. Paul. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Thank you so much, Barry, for that conversation there. And thank you, Zoe Miller, for organising it. Um, thank you so much to you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you're about to have a really amazing, lovely experience in whatever you go with the and do with the rest of the, the day right now or your next thing that you're about to do. I am going to go and have another coffee. It's a little bit murky and over overcast in Berlin, but that's not going to stop me. I'd like to say thank you to ESO for doing the amazing music to the show. I'd like to thank bearradio.org uh, for letting me be part of their network of English language podcasts based in Berlin. And I'll see you soon.